so it was interesting as I was trying to figure out exactly um, how to handle uh, this series that we're going to start today and do for the next 10 weeks, and, and this idea of warrior, and, and, and kind of it was born out of some reflection uh, as I was looking at the books of First and Second Timothy and looking at the themes throughout and thinking about the heart of the warrior. In fact, if you actually just studied on that theme, warrior, you will find some pretty profound, pretty heart-raising themes that come out of that. In fact, you go way back to Thermopylae, right? You think about the Spartans and their combat, and, and they had a motto that they lived by. In fact, every mother of a Spartan warrior, as her son went to battle, she would say the same thing, fight well, so much so that you either come home with your shield or on your shield. It was the warrior motto for their culture, right? You think about other times and places and battlefields, and you have other mottos. You go to Vietnam, and the motto of the Green Berets was to liberate the oppressed. You go to the Navy SEALs in Afghanistan, and it was ready to lead, ready to follow, never quit. That was their motto. You go to the Air Force para-jumpers in uh, you know, Iraq, and their motto was that others may live. You go to Iwo Jima with the Marines. Semper Fidelis, always faithful. See, there's this thing that exists in this warrior code where it's so much not about you. It's so much not about your person. It's not about your health. It's not about your comfort. It's about the cause. It's about the purpose. That's the heart of the warrior. So in looking at this particular series, I'm like, you know what? That fits pretty nicely. Because if you think about the warrior attitude, they think, they plan, they strategize, they train. They have tactics and they have skill sets. They do all of those things. They have purpose. But their heart and their calling is not about engaging in combat. Their heart is about seeing peace established. Their heart is about seeing others around them built up. That is the heart of the warrior. And so I think it is very fitting for this particular series to be titled Warrior. Because that is the heart of Paul as he encourages a young pastor named Timothy on fighting the good fight of faith. So, if you have a Bible, please open up the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now, uh, while we are starting off this series, and again, it's going to last 10 weeks, this is actually a part of a much bigger series we've been doing throughout the year, right? So it actually is all about the life of the church of Ephesus. Everything about that church. And, and here's why. If you read through the New Testament, there is no church referenced more than the church of Ephesus. That particular church received more letters than any other church in the New Testament. It is a prolific church. It is the church that shaped a lot of how we understand our church history, our church heritage, our church doctrine. It flows from this particular environment. This church was huge. And so in thinking about that, I thought, man, it would be really cool to look at the entire lifespan of a church that is planted that grows and then has a couple of generations under its belt because we see that whole time span throughout the New Testament. So it started in the book of Acts where Paul rolls into the city of Ephesus very much like Seattle, right? It has the same kind of dynamics and demographics and there he preaches the gospel. And there is a profound revival but there's also a riot and a revolt because the gospel always divides. 
right? It's always going to divide. Uh, some people that are legalistic, they're going to hate the gospel. Some people that are all about license, they misuse the gospel. The gospel will always divide, and so it divides that particular city. Uh, but there's huge revival, and the church is starting. And so as it begins to grow from all these people, from all these walks of life, uh, Paul then writes a letter, which is the book of Ephesians. And that letter is to say, here's what we believe, and here's what we do based on what we believe. And so it's this aerial dropping of truth so that their lives are changed and moved and motivated to live the Christian life. And so that's the heart of that particular letter. Well, now 10 years has transpired from the start of the church to this season where there's this poor young pastor that Paul has thrown into the wolves, and he's trying to pastor a difficult church. And it is difficult, man. You look at the topography of just the people in that church, man. You've got everything. You've got prudes and you've got perverts, right? All together. You've got legalists and you have people that have no sense of any boundary whatsoever. You have widows that are in need and you have widows that are on the take. You have dudes that are hanging out with prostitutes on Saturday night, but they want to usher on Sunday morning. You've got like women who look like they just stepped out of like, you know, like the real housewives of Beverly Hills and they want to pastor the church. I mean, it's, it's fun, right? So that's what Timothy is engaged in. And Paul wants to write to him and say, dude, I know it's hard. I know you're facing a lot of stuff. Uh, how can I encourage you? How can I inspire you? And here's my challenge to us. There's going to be this tendency for us to go through these letters and say, oh, this isn't to me. This is to pastors. This is to some young pastor on how to be a better pastor. No, this is to Christians on how to be better Christians. All of us are in the same boat as Timothy here. We're trying to figure it out as we go. And that's what I love about First and Second Timothy. I mean, it's all these different challenges and problems. And how does the gospel intersect with those challenges and problems? And so Paul wants to encourage him and encourage us in the process. And so he starts in verse 1. He says, this letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus, who gives us Hope. That is the perfect way to start off a letter to a dude that is just throttled with the weight of life's problems. That is a great reminder to us that no matter what is going on, what the conditions are, what God gives us is hope. When it's too weighty, too burdened, too hard to bear, we need to remember, oh yeah, what has Jesus done? He's done that which gives us hope. And so he says, I am writing to Timothy. In light of that hope, I'm writing to Timothy, my true son in the faith. May God, and, uh, may God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord give you grace and mercy and peace. Right? A lot of times we just read these as like introductions like, hey, you know, I've got some ink, I'll say something, whatever. But all of these matter to Timothy. All of them matter to us. I mean, first of all, again, hope, because we need hope. But then grace, what does grace mean to us as Christians? It's this idea that says God loves us unconditionally without strings attached, right? We're not earning to get his love. We're not earning to maintain his love. We don't have to do anything to secure his love. That's just grace. He just loves us without strings attached. And so he's telling Timothy, man, don't forget, you have hope. What does that hope rest on? First, a grace where you are loved with no strings attached. From that love, there is mercy, right? Which God is just simply looking out for you in kindness. That's what it means to have the mercy of God. And what that leads to is peace. And peace is valuable because we don't exactly live in a world of peace. 
Not only do we not live in a world of peace, but a lot of times in our own lives we don't even sense peace unless we're going back to that string where we go, oh yeah, wait, 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 no matter what's going on, I have hope. No matter what's going on, I have grace. I am loved no matter what other people think of me or say of me or whatever is going on in my world. I have grace. God shows me mercy. Man, that, that gives me peace. And so Paul just seeks to strengthen Timothy because, again, his circumstance is not good. It's harsh. It's hard. He's opposed. He's facing problems, right? But what Paul is also going to be saying to Timothy is, hey, man, even though I know it's rough, even though I know there's problems, uh, you don't have the luxury to just kind of boo-hoo on your pillow all day long and not take some responsibility for, for seeing things change in your world. Right? I mean, God loves you. He's for you. He's sold out to you. He's given you what you need. But, but Timothy, man, you're, you're going to have to cowboy up too. And so that's what he begins to tell him. And it starts with something foundational. Right? This is the way the letter opens up. He tells Timothy, of all the things you can prioritize, the very first thing I want you to do as you seek to be a Christian in your environment is I want you to guard the message. I want you to guard the message. Verse 3, he says, When I left for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and to stop those whose teaching was contrary to the truth. Right? So no sooner is he trying to say, Man, grace, mercy, peace, your love... Timothy, dude, you got it. You got to grab the sword and you got to be prepared to fight. You've got to be ready to go on this one, man. You've got to stop the people that are teaching things that are contrary to what is sound for the Christian life. So no sooner does it just intro with this nice uh, kind of pleasing idea. He's instantly, you've got a job to do, right? Stop what they're doing. It isn't even like casual. It's like, dude, you've got to stop that. He says, don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths and spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which do not help people live a life of faith in God. See, what I dig about this, what I love, is that Paul zeroes in on the first great priority. This is true for us. Guard the truth. Guard the gospel. Guard the Bible. That's what we're about. That is our first calling and priority. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Because the message embodies our essence as Christians. Let me give you a parallel. Um, if uh, you ever uh, were in the military or you plan to sign up, uh, your process is very simple. You're going to go to a recruiter. You're going to find the branch of service you want to go into. Uh, they're going to send you to the military entrance processing station. You're going to take some tests. You're going to go through some physicals. And at the end, they're going to hoard you all into a room. And you're going to raise your right hand. And you're going to swear an oath. What's interesting about that oath is that you do not swear an oath to protect the country. You do not swear an oath that says, I will fight for territory. That is not the oath you swear. You swear an oath to a message. You swear an oath to defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States. Nowhere in the oath do you pledge to protect property or land or assets. You swear to protect an idea. A message because what we know as Americans as soldiers going into the military that our essence is our ideology it's the idea of what we stand for that's really the heart of our culture so that's what a soldier protects that's what a soldier defends that's what a soldier advances message see a message changes everything and so more than Paul saying to Timothy hey man I want you to protect our heritage or these certain morals or, you know, uh, some kind of turf. 
He says, man, you, you have to protect the gospel. You have to protect the message that Jesus came to save sinners through the cross and rose three days later, and that changes lives. He's like, you have to protect that because there's going to be this temptation to not protect that. There's going to be a temptation to say, well, Jesus isn't the only way. There's going to be a temptation to say morals are more important than the gospel. There's going to be a temptation to get bogged down in all kinds of other things instead of the one thing that changes everything. And so Paul is saying, don't forget the gospel. Don't get sucked into all these other kind of tangents that don't really change lives. We love tangents. We do, right? Because sometimes we go, oh, man, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, that's so done, Right? It's so dull, it's so boring, it's so Christianese, man. I don't want to study theology. I want to do some self-help cool thing. Like, you know, just whatever. I want lighthearted. Or I want something novel or interesting, something that nobody's ever said before. That's what I want to really invest into. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place for that, but, but it is easy to get off the track and lose what really subsidizes true faith. It's easy to get into things where it's all about the speculation more than it is about the concrete realities that God has stated. I see this sometimes, especially with um, like end times studies. Here's what we know about the end. It is coming with Jesus. That's what we know, right? But that's all we know, right? But like, man, there's a whole industry to speculate on what that looks like. And to my horror, last week I'm reading uh, this, this blog on movies or whatever, they're bringing back the Left Behind movies. They're rebooting. Well, I know, that's weird enough. Not Kirk Cameron, Nicolas Cage. All right, so I'm like, wow, it's amazing. Um, can't wait to see Nick Cage fighting for Jesus. All right, so um, at a cinema near you, right? But all of that is, people love the speculation, right? So all that is, is in there. We love to speculate. We love things that just interest us and entertain us. But, but Paul says, you know what? The, there is something more important. It's the stuff that builds faith, right? Because that's really what we need anyway. I mean, life is tough enough. And what we really need to invest into are those truths, those anchor points that secure us when life is hard. I guarantee you, some feel-good self-help book is not really going to help when life severely falls apart. When you hear it's cancer, or I've had an affair, or your child's sick, or uh, you're losing your job, or whatever the bad news can be, a nice little self-help book isn't going to do it. Speculation about if Nick Cage saves us from the Antichrist isn't going to do it. Right? What's going to do it are these deep truths of God, that God is enduring and merciful and loving and sees you in the light of Christ and does all things for our good. Right? Resting on those truths that build faith, that is what is key. And so when Paul says to Timothy, man, don't let them go down that road, it, it is one of the most loving things he could say. Because he's saying in essence, you know what, if they go down that road, they will be ill-equipped for the realities of life, and when those realities hit, they will run to other things instead of the main thing to secure themselves, and they will find no security. They will find no moorings in what they're doing. So he says, man, you've got to make sure that you stop those who teach contrary to truth, who get sucked into all these other things. It doesn't help. It's just Jesus' junk food. It's like a Twinkie Bible. It isn't going to help. You need to give them meat. You need to give them truth. Make sure you do that. In fact, this is why Paul says in verse 5, the purpose of my instruction 
is that all believers would be filled with the love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. He says, here's what I really care about. I don't care about all those other subset ideas. I don't care about all the fads and trends. He says, there's three things that you could condense the Christian life into. There are the three. A pure heart. A one-mindedness in the way that you approach life. Right? I mean, that was Paul. Right? He's like, there's just one thing I do. I strive forward. That's what I do. I look to Christ. I want Jesus. One thing. Paul was a one-minded man. And I look at that and I go, man, I want to be a one-minded man because if I do so, everything else aligns behind that. It's when I'm double-minded that James says, man, you're unstable in all your ways. But see, a pure heart is a one-minded man, a one-minded woman. I have the will to one thing. He says also, oh, a clear conscience. You know how freeing a clear conscience is? You know how freeing it is when you have no baggage hidden that you have to worry about? You know how freeing it is when your conscience is clear because you're not engaged in something you know is wrong? Sin sucks life from us. Sin, sin just sucks, all right? So it sucks energy. It sucks joy. It sucks purpose, it sucks time, it just sucks life, it sucks, right? But a clear conscience, oh man, that is freedom, that is liberation. Because again, you're not looking behind you, oh, am I going to get caught, what's going to happen next, right? No, you just have a clear conscience, Paul says, man, that is a powerful thing to have a clear conscience. And then a genuine faith, right? Conviction in your belief, not faith that says, I hope, a faith that says, I'm certain. I'm positive, right? That's, that's what the writer of Hebrews says about faith. He says, man, it's a conviction in things not seen. You're certain. So Paul says, that's my heart for people. My heart is not to burden them with a bunch of baggage. My heart is not to diversify them with a bunch of interests. I want them zeroed in to these three things, pure heart, clear conscience, genuine faith. That's what matters. Unfortunately, not everybody wants to play by that. So he says, but some of the people have missed the whole point. They've turned away from these things and they spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they do not know that what they don't even know what they are talking about even though they speak so confidently. See, in every age and every generation there's some set of topics that people get sucked into that are not the big idea. In this particular environment, it was some group of people that got sucked into all kinds of things pertaining to the Old Testament law. They thought they knew stuff. They thought they could teach it. Paul says, you know what? They're just knuckleheads. They don't know what they're doing. All right? They think they know what they're doing. They think they're on the right track, but you know what? Uh, they don't. They just show up in a tweed jacket, bow tie. They think they can state truth, but they don't know truth. Because what they're doing is instead of building up heart, conscience, and faith, they're getting tied into all these little details. They don't really develop anything. They just distract from what needs to be developed. And so he says in verse 9, pertaining to this problem of these people teaching the law. He says, well, here's what we know. We know that the law is good when it is used correctly. See, these guys were using the law for all kinds of other reasons, to inflate their own ego, to show that they're good teachers, whatever it is. And Paul says, no, but they're not using the law in a right way. Here you go. Here's three uses for the law. And you'll be able to remember these because they are simple. First, there is a civil use. And the civil use of the law is a gavel. It's a gavel to constrain unrighteousness. So we use the law to say, you know what? Guilty, that you're being unrighteous. That's one use of the law. 
The second use of the law in the Bible is a spiritual use. It's a hammer. And it's a hammer to crush our self-righteousness. Where we start thinking, hey man, I'm all that in a can of spam. I'm awesome. I'm a godly man. I keep the law. And then somebody says, here, read it. Check it out. Do you think you keep this whole thing? That's what it's there to do. It's a hammer to crush self-righteousness. So in one sense, it's a gavel to constrain unrighteousness. Here it is a hammer to crush self-righteousness. The third is that it's directive. It's a chisel to inform the newly made righteous through Christ of how they pursue deeper righteousness in him. So it has these three functions, right? So it's either a gavel, a hammer, or a chisel. And when Paul is talking about it here, he's talking about that hammer. The law used right as a hammer to crush the self-righteous. That's the proper usage, right? Uh, or, or maybe another way to put it is it's a hammer to point out that all of us are sinful. All of us. Right? When we think we're not that bad and not that sinful, what the law is, is literally, it's like a tape measure. That's literally what it means. Canon is a ruler, a ruler of measurement. And so it's like this measuring stick, and on it are 613 standards of measure. 613 laws. And so basically you take it and go, okay, well, I'm going to measure myself against the law. What you find out really quick is you don't measure up. Right? The law is so much loftier than you. So that should cause you to go, man, I'm a sinful guy. I need the gospel. I need Jesus. I cannot do this on my own. Unfortunately, these guys weren't doing that. They were looking at the law saying, we're doing it. Why aren't you doing it? We're going to hold you to it, not by uh, seeing the grace of God infused into your life and change you. We're just going to hold you to the standard. And we're going to talk about all the details of all these things that you should do. And Paul says, they're not even using the law correctly. He says, because the law is not intended for people who do what is right, it is for people who are lawless and rebellious. That's why the law exists. In fact, I have a friend of mine, I love this, Um, he was a youth pastor for years, and he would do these big camps every year. And every year it was the same orientation. All the kids would come in, and his first statement is, welcome to camp, at camp there are no laws. He goes, there are no laws. Day one, there's not a single rule, there's not a single law. He says, here's why. Because rules and laws are for stupid people. So as soon as you're stupid, there'll be a rule or a law. Right? So, and that's always the way it started. And he's dead on. Right? Like, it's not for righteous people, it's for stupid people. Right? And there should be no rules and no laws until somebody's stupid and then boom, there's a law. Right? Don't worry, by the end of camp, there were many rules, many laws many things, because there are many stupid people who went to camp, right? So, and it counts. That's solid. That's true, right? I mean, we even see it today. We look around at all the laws in our culture. Are the laws meant so law-abiding citizens keep the laws? No, they're meant so stupid people don't break the laws. Now, unfortunately, as law-abiding citizens, we feel like they're for us now. They're not supposed to be, but that's how it feels. But the law's for the unlawful. And that's Paul's point. He goes, that's the right usage of the law. That's how you should see it, right? So he says, it's for the lawless and rebellious, for those who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father and mother or commit other murders. The laws for people who are sexually immoral, who practice homosexuality or are slave traders or liars or promise breakers or do anything else that is contrary to what is wholesome teaching says the whole purpose of the law is the measuring stick that says we need the grace of God. 
What's interesting about this list right here, it's a consolidation of the Ten Commandments. He says it differently, but it's just a consolidation of those ten. This is in the laws to point out we have a need. We have a need. Now, as a quick sidebar, just because it's in here, and I thought, well, I'll just bring it up because you'll probably hear this argument sometimes. People will say sometimes, you know what? The problem with the Bible is it never condemns slavery. Oh, that's funny. It says slave traders. They're bad. It does. All right, so there's your freebie for showing up. Um, all right? So next time it says, it never does. Well, I don't know. Slave traders are going to hell, it says. That's bad. Um, and they need the gospel, right? So the law should be used for this purpose. It shouldn't be used for the purpose of we as Christians looking at the world around us and saying, you know what, you guys are, are, are lost and broken and stupid and all these things, and I'm better than you. It should never be that. We should never look at those who don't abide by the law of God and have any kind of pride or arrogance in relationship to that. We should have a broken heart as a fellow sinner. This is all I know is the difference between you and me is that I have been brought to a place of repentance. I acknowledge my sin and I lean on the grace of God. That's the only function the law should have for us. As soon as we start looking at our world and our culture and seeing them in this kind of superior light, we're superior to them, we're, we're doing what these guys were doing, and Paul says that's a dangerous thing. We're using it wrongly. Right? We need to use it to drive us back to the gospel, back to grace, back to a need for God and a need for transformation that can only be given by him as a gift. And so Paul says, man, don't use the law in a wrong way. Use the law in a right way to show people that they need grace, right? That they are confronted by their sin and driven to repentance. Because that's where you find the glorious good news that is entrusted by our blessed God. So that's where he wraps it up. He goes, there's this whole list of sin. It just points out our need for the gospel. And praise God that God has given us a good gospel. See, the law is good, we're bad, a good law points out how we're bad, but a good God comes and brings a good news message that he can save us and change us and adapt us to his nature instead of our nature, which is contrary to his. And so Paul looks at all of this and says, man, that's the big idea. Timothy, you've got you to guard that. You've got to make sure that's maintained, right? Which again, I know it's so easy even today to go, man, is the, is the gospel the thing that's going to change our world? Yes, more than anything else, man, it doesn't matter who we send to Washington or Olympia or whatever. We, it, that's not going to change the world. The gospel changes the world. Right? And so Paul just says, guard, Timothy. You've got to guard this. Keep it in perspective. It's the glorious good news that's entrusted to us. Now, Paul says it that way, and Paul means it because he's not just an academic. He's not just a guy in an ivory tower teaching the Bible. He's a guy that's been transformed by this. That's why he commemorates the message. Right? No sooner does he say, you have to guard it, that he commemorates it. He commemorates it through his own life, his own experience, right? As someone changed by the message. This is what I love about Paul. He says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is giving me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. So again, like I said, he's not just a seminary teacher, and he's not just equipping a young pastor and saying, make sure you protect the Bible. He's saying, protect the Bible and protect the gospel because frankly, Timothy, it changed my life. 
It radically changed me. I mean, you think about what this dude was before Jesus. He was a guy that was self-righteous. He thought he did the law perfectly. He used the law in unlawful ways to exalt himself and attack others. He went full-on Darth Vader on the church, right? Just He was going to kill everybody, wipe them out, get rid of this Jesus guy, get rid of all the reputation of Jesus. And then Jesus, in his love and grace, in the middle of him, on his way to wipe out the church, says, Paul, you're persecuting me. Now I'm going to use you to plant churches. I mean, it wasn't like Paul had this epiphany one day of like, man, am I going the right direction with this? Maybe, maybe if the church isn't a bad thing, maybe Jesus is right. No, he's on his way to go wipe them out. When the grace of God steps in and says, oh man, you got to do it different. You need something different. And it changed everything. Changed everything. Now, it's interesting. I notice Paul here says, I did it in ignorance and unbelief. I want you to understand that ignorance does not mean innocence. Because that's what sometimes happens. Oh, we're sincere. We're ignorant. We don't know. Yeah, but it's not innocence, even though you're ignorant. You're still to blame. Paul knew he was still to blame. Paul knew he was a sinner. And he knew that he only stood by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God, right? Because it was the grace of God that filled him with love and faith from Jesus. That, that, that changed his internals in a completely different way. And again, that is the thing we have to remember. The gospel is power, right? The gospel is power. The gospel isn't just a message of print, the gospel is power. It actually steps in and changes the internals of a person's life. This is why we should have so much faith in the gospel. It's why we should protect the gospel. The law cannot transform a person. It was never designed to transform a person, never had the power to transform a person. You can give them 613 laws, they can keep all those laws perfectly, and they're still going to hell untransformed because the law doesn't transform. It was only the grace of God that transformed Paul, gave him this love and this faith that filled his life. And so this is why he says in verse 15, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? Here's what I love about that, that volley right there. Uh, people want to commandeer Jesus to other lesser things. He was a good teacher, he was a good philosopher, he was a good sage, he was a healer, uh, all these kinds of things. Paul says, here was the mission statement of Jesus. This is why we protect the message. Jesus came to save sinners. That's it. There's his message. There's his mission. That's what he does. He says, that's why we fight for this. Right? This is why even as a church, we talk about being missional theologians. This is why we care so much about getting the gospel to people. This is why we believe the gospel is the one thing that changes everything, because that was the mission. Jesus came to save sinners. And Paul says, and I am the worst of them all. This is why I say it is, it is a commemoration of the gospel for Paul at this point because he is just looking himself in the mirror and saying, I know better than anybody how powerful this message is because I hated the very Jesus that showed me grace. I revolted against him and what did he do? He rescued me. I sought to kill and stamp out what he cares about and he cared for me and brought me into his service. I, the chief of all sinners, the best, the president of the sinners club, me, was saved by this Jesus because Jesus came to save sinners, right? He says, man, God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience even with the worst of sinners. 
then others will also realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. I love that, the torrent of grace to the chief of sinners. That's all you have. And, and I dig it because what Paul is saying is, man, in doing that into his life, that became a living model of what the gospel can do. Maybe you know people like that where you're like, man, you should have known them before Jesus. Who? wow, right? Like, you see a transformation, right? That is Christ demonstrating his power in the lives of other people. That's why he does it with Paul, right? He demonstrates first that God is a patient God. I mean, again, if Paul had been like causing trouble for a while, he was thug Paul before he was theologian Paul, and as a thug, God's like being patient with him. I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him, but I'm, I'm patient with this, this guy that's against me. God is immensely patient. You know who's not patient? Us, right? We're not. We're horrible. Look at us, right? If you, if you like work in the city and you're coming home, it's the commute, right? You're rolling like maybe five miles an hour, maybe 15. You're really booking at 15, right? And, and you're starting to get angry and agitated at the slow traffic, and you're sitting in a comfortable chair, right? You've got AC in the summer, you've got heat in the winter, you've got a radio, you can talk to your loved ones on the phone, and you're mad about going 5 to 15, right? Impatient. We don't do patience well, right? You get a hot pocket. Three minutes, oh my gosh, right? Like, right? Come on! Want my lava-filled pocket, so right? It's no patience. None. You text somebody, 45 seconds later, hello, right? <laughs> Move in here, right? We have no patience. God is patient. The gospel shows God is patient. And so Paul says, man, this is what is displayed in our lives, God's patience. I love it, right? Not just patience with anybody, but patience even to the worst of the sinners, right? The worst. Because what God loves is not proud people, but humble people. What God loves is the worst of sinners acknowledging they're sinners. That's what I love about God, that he's not looking for the performers. He's just looking for the repentant. And so that is a huge message. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how many times we've done it. The gospel will rescue all. A patient God who says, I will talk to, bring in, love, and impart my righteousness to even the worst of the worst. And so what, what, what Paul is saying here is that God does that in our lives so that we might even be a billboard of the grace of God in the lives of others, right? So that others can look at our lives and they should see that same disposition. Not that we're proud, but that we're humble. Not that we figured it out, but we're repentant. That we're dependent on God. That should be the heart that people see. Again, not religion, not religiosity, not legalism, not rule keeping, but people desperate for God because that's the gospel. People just desperate for God. Paul says, guard that, protect that, commemorate that, memorialize that, display that. Let it be the grace of God on the jersey of your back, right? Just, you are that display. We are that display. Paul was that display. That's how it works. It's for this reason that he says, all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. I guarantee when Paul wrote that, he was writing that through tears of joy and profound grace and gratitude. Again, it isn't just I need some theology here. He's a changed man. 
praise be to God, my life is different. And again, you've got to keep in mind, I mean, most of the time, Paul is spending his life beaten, hungry, imprisoned, shipwrecked, hated, mocked, ostracized, and he says, praise be to God. I'm a changed man. It's like, dude, your life would have been so much better if you would have just stayed a Pharisee. You'd still have some money, you'd still have a family, you'd still have some notoriety, you'd have some power in the community. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I got Jesus now. I've got Jesus. That, that, that's sufficient. That fulfills. This is Timothy. That is the message. That is the message. You have to guard it. You need to commemorate it. And you need to fight for it. You need to fight for it. Right? Verse 18. He says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you based on the prophetic word spoken about you earlier. May they help you wage the good warfare. So notice that that's the imagery he loves to use. This is why the series is called Warrior. He wants Timothy to know. He wants us to know what we're gauged in is a war, is a battle. Don't lighten it. It's not just religion's my opinion. It's a battle. And the message matters. So he says, man, I, I write this to you so that it may help you to wage the good warfare. He says, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. Right? If there's any two things that he wants Timothy to prepare his mind for, it's those. Right? That's why he cares about instructing him the truth because the truth grows our faith. The truth informs the conscience. If you lose the conscience, you lose the compass. If you lose the faith, you're going to be shipwrecked eventually. It's just the way it's going to work, and that's exactly what happened here. He says, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear, for some have deliberately violated their conscience, and as a result, their faith has become shipwrecked. Again, you lose the compass, you're going to wreck the ship. As soon as we start doing things that twists the conscience, that dilutes the conscience, that darkens the conscience, we're going to go astray, man. It doesn't take much to do that. Right? If you've ever seen people melt down in their lives, like Charlie Sheen's a great example of a dude that's just wiped out the, the conscience. And I don't say that like I'm trying to criticize him. I'm saying it because we've all seen it. Right? Where you can watch him in an interview and, and you just know like he doesn't see it. Not even remotely close. It's like for him, it's just like, nope, doesn't see it. That's what happens when a conscience is wiped out or ill-informed or rewritten. And, and sometimes that happens. Right? We start embracing different truths or different ideas. We start holding on to certain sins that are just corruptive and corrosive. So he says, man, their faith is shipwrecked. Of these are Hermeneus and Alexander. They're two examples. He says, so I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they may learn not to blaspheme God. Yeah, that's bad. Like, like when the apostle's like, uh, here you go, Satan, you handle them. I mean, you're in trouble, you know? But, you know, that's even an act of grace because that gets them to rock bottom faster and hopefully to repentance. You know, sometimes God does hand us over to Satan like, all right, you know what, uh, he's going he's gonna to make you long for me again. Right? We'll just let your conscience keep going down that dusty road of sin and brokenness and Satan's going to go ahead and just slap you upside the head for a while and eventually you're going to cry out to God and say, give me grace. And so that's what he tells Timothy. Man, sometimes it's just good to hand him over to Satan. But as for you, Right? Cling to your faith. Grow in a clear conscience before God. Right? And that's what we all need to do, right? If we were to say, all right, how do I grow as a Christian? Man, grow in your faith. Protect your conscience. Right? Then it goes well. It goes well. Right? You lose those, your compass is shot, and your ship is sailing into rocky terrain. 
So what Paul wants us to do, what he wants Timothy to do, is to fight this good fight. Right? And so as we go through this series, all of it is embedded under that idea of we're fighting this good fight. We're fighting for this message that matters. We're believing in this context that says the cross changes everything. It shapes us, it moves us, it grows us, it deploys us, completes us. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your heart. I thank you for your grace. And as we get into this particular letter, and we look at um, what it means to live that message in a turbulent context, I pray that you will teach us how to cross-reference that into our own circumstances, into our own lives. We love you, Jesus, and we need you, and we praise you in your awesome name. Amen.